Welcome to Balance of Power on 1039-1450 WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ken Kale, joined by our student panel, two-time U.S. Representative Paul Hodes, former senior staffer and campaign manager Matt Robeson, and columnist and political analyst Alicia Preston. Back in July, we discussed the idea of a vaccine mandate, and no one thought the administration would do it. They said they wouldn't, and now they have. So what changed, and was the president's vaccine mandate a good idea, Alicia? No. Um, And let me preface this with, I absolutely support the people getting the vaccine. I think everyone who has the health ability to get it should get it for the good of themselves, their families, and all of society. But this is an overreach. I mean, I think that private businesses if they want to require employees to be vaccinated or mask, I have every right to do that. That's part of a free market principle. Um, I, I disagreed with my Republican friends in the last few weeks who have been railing against companies that are requiring this to go on boats or to concerts or other things. I think it is the right of a private business to require it. I think the government has the right to inquire for their employees. Um, I think states, depending on how it works in each state, can require vaccines for students. Those are part of a government entity. I think the federal government requiring private businesses, and in this case, those with employees of 100 or more, to uh, require their employees to be vaccinated is an overreach and should not be in the purview of the federal government. Moreover, it raises too many questions. So in this in this situation, the employee has to get vaccinated and or get weekly testing. For a company, I wonder who's going to pay to manage all of that. Who's going to pay for the weekly testing? Is it an employee? Is it the company? Um, in some capacity, that's an unfunded mandate. And so while, yes, you can say, well, it's a choice of the employee not to get vaccinated and therefore he or she has to pay for the test. I just do not think this should be what the federal government is doing from a philosophical standpoint. Congressman Hodes, was the mandate a good idea? Well, it depends who you talk to. Um, The uh, Republican governors are howling. It certainly is an aggressive use of the executive power. A lot of Democrats probably are united behind this. Most Americans think people ought to be vaccinated. Um, This was occasioned by uh, the fourth wave or surge Um, in COVID with the Delta variant, that is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. All the science is clear that it is the unvaccinated who are at the greatest risk. Um, You know, the, the, um, the, the, the un, un, unfortunate confluence of unvaccination and Republicans um, is due to misinformation and, and crazy talk. So I think this unites uh, Democrats. It may unite Republicans, um, but it certainly unites Democrats. Um, it's, uh, it, it, was, it was, in my judgment, necessary. It is uh, part of the role of the president and the administration to uh, look out for the general welfare and protect the, uh, protect the, protect the public health. Um, some employers and business groups have welcomed uh, the requirements. Um, some have not, uh, but in order to, to, to we, we, are, we were facing a situation where the Republican uh, governors were, are not cooperating. Uh, people who are not vaccinated are dying. Uh, and overwhelming our hospitals. Um, something had to be done. So I think this vaccine mandate 
was necessary. It does represent a reversal. Uh, it wasn't as if the administration was chomping at the bit to do this. Uh, but as uh, President Biden said in response to the legal threats uh, when he when he spoke uh, at a Washington middle school to urge parents to get their shots, have at it. Um, uh, it, it you know it's it's disappointing that it's necessary, not because of the mandate, but because of the crazy talk from the the folks of Alicia's party. Um, just crazy talk out there about uh, vaccines and and what is necessary to try to get a handle on COVID nineteen. We are facing a serious health crisis. Um, it. Uh, Trump and the Republican administration created a crisis that didn't have to be if they had followed the plans for a reasonable public health response. More than 600,000 Americans have died and um, uh, still there's resistance. So um, my dear friend and colleague, Alicia Preston, can bemoan the idea of, of government intervention to prevent death and disease but it seems to be a reasonable response to a crisis that's perpetuated by Republicans in positions of power still spreading misinformation. Matt Robeson? I want to stay focused on the dual question of what changed and was it a good idea, especially the point that Alicia raised about whether it is a legal overreach. What changed? Well, Delta changed. Today, the number of kids hospitalized with COVID has reached an all-time high. Among the group of seven countries, the most advanced and richest countries in the world, the U.S. vaccination rate ranks sixth, and we're lagging further and further behind. So what changed is COVID going up because of Delta and vaccination tailing off because of forces that Paul just alluded to. Was this a good idea? COVID is the prime directive for this administration. If you remember the movie Apollo 13, there's a great scene where an engineer stops a meeting where all the engineers are saying, oh, we got to do this, we got to do that. And he says, wait, whoa, whoa, stop. Power is everything. It all comes down to that. Without that, we can't do anything else. We can't, we can't save these guys. Well, COVID is everything for this administration. It doesn't solve every problem, but you can't solve any problem without it. It's the starting point. You can't fix the consumer and voter mood. You can't fix the economy. From the economy comes tax receipts for all the other needs that we have as a country. And you can't stop the government aid that we've been handing out at a, at a rate of $5 trillion a year. And you need those funds for longer term investments. So everything comes back to addressing COVID. So yes, it was a good idea. And then finally, I would just say to Alicia's point, the administration's authority that they are claiming to impose this mandate on employers stems from the 1970 law that created the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA. I think Americans broadly agree with that law and with the idea that employers should not be able to operate a factory that is a tinderbox, that's a fire hazard. They shouldn't be able to operate a slaughterhouse where workers are getting injured constantly, cutting off limbs, cutting off digits. Nor should Americans have to endure a work environment where there is a high chance that they are going to bring home a deadly disease to their children. Let's not forget, our children are not vaccinated. 
The number of kids hospitalized with COVID, as I just said, has reached an all-time high. No one should have to be exposed to that kind of atmosphere simply to go to work, bring home money to take care of their family. So yes, this was a good idea. I can just address the partisan comments. It is true to Paul's point that the largest spreaders of misinformation happen to be Republicans. Most Republicans, however, do not believe all the crazy. Most of us don't wear tin hats. And, you know, but it is not strictly Republicans. I know a woman who refuses to let her 16 year old get vaccinated because it uh, will change her reproductive system which no one has ever said. As a matter of fact, there have been papers that countered that to say that is not true. We are really smart doctors. We're all united to say that is not true. And yet she still believes it. And I assure you, she is not a Republican nor a Trumper. So it, it, there's a lot of crazy out there and it's frustrating. It's frustrating to keep people saying, oh, it changes your DNA. It does not. It does not have aborted fetus tissue being injected into your body. But people keep spreading these things and making people not get the vaccine. I will tell you, if it changed my DNA or had aborted fetal tissue in being injected into my body, I would not probably get it either. But since none of that is true, I was proud to get the vaccine and happy to do it the moment I was allowed. But, you know, just like we, I remember years back when there was a lot of hate toward uh, Muslims. And we see some of that now with the Afghan refugees being brought over here. Just as all Muslims are not terrorists, but most of the terrorists we see around are Muslims. Same goes for the crazy misinformation spreaders of Republicans. Most of them are Republicans, but most Republicans are not them. Actually, I think that's a very fair distinction. And I would just draw one further distinction to build on your point, Alicia. Actually, survey research does back you up that vaccine hesitancy at baseline is actually fairly split among people who identify ideologically as conservative versus people who identify as liberal. You see an awful lot of Waldorf school type parents who don't like vaccines at baseline. It is true that there, that is a segment even now extending into COVID hesitancy. I think the distinction though, that is also fair to be drawn that, that Paul was alluding to is that among political leadership, you basically see the vaccine denialism, the vaccine opposition coming from Republican politicians. And that is in itself, I would offer a problem. So what about the politics of all this? Is this a politically dangerous move for Joe Biden or a political benefit, Congressman Holtz? Well, I think in, I think in the end, it helps him. Um, it shows him to be a strong president. Uh, it shows him to be a president who's following the science. It shows that he cares about people and the public health. Um, the fact that it's raising a howl from uh, re powerful Republicans, the, the Republican governors who, um, uh, you know, is, is, proof, uh, is proof enough in itself. I think that um, this was a legitimate exercise of executive power. I think uh, the, the general sense of the population and the electorate is that we need to get a handle on COVID. People are recognizing the pandemic of the unvaccinated. Um, and this, I think, ends up as a big plus in the Biden column. Alessio? You know, the only poll I've seen since this came out shows that a very, very slim majority of Americans support 
um, this mandate. And so, you know, that's not a big indicator because that all depends where people were, were coming from. I, I don't know if it helps or harms him. It harms him with those who don't like it and it helps him with those who do. But, you know, other things will come out about his presidency and his decision to make this. You know, Chris Sununa released a statement, our governor released a statement and called out the president because the governors have these weekly calls that presidents traditionally participate in. Biden doesn't participate in them, doesn't talk to governors about his plan to do this, and then unilaterally does it. That's not leadership. Getting on a call with all the governors and being like, guys, this is what I think needs to be done. What's it like in your state? That's leadership. So I, I don't buy the leadership argument just because he came out and said, I'm making a mandate. That's power. That's not leading. Matt? I actually think Alicia makes a, a fair point at the end there. One of the well-taken criticisms of the Trump administration, well, besides the fact that Donald Trump is a crazy person, one of the criticisms of Donald Trump was uh, sort of a twist on what Alicia just offered, which was not just lack of coordination with governors, um, but also only coordinating with Republican friends, which uh, was was particularly un-American. That's a, that's a fair point. But politically, Back to Paul's point, uh, there actually is a morning consult poll out. I don't know if it's the same one you saw, Alicia. It's pretty consistent, um, you know, across the board, requiring all employers with 100 or more employees to mandate vaccines, 58% support, 36% oppose, federal workers and contractors mandated, 57%, 36% oppose, yada, yada, uh, healthcare workers. So it's a pretty solid it's a pretty solid majority. It's not a landslide majority, but a pretty solid majority. But I think more to the point. It's who I don't think the Biden administration politically thinks they're losing anybody who wasn't already against them with this mandate. And I'm not sure that they're gaining people who weren't already pretty well disposed toward them. I think the fight here is for people, the, the small proportion of swing voters, the small proportion of persuadable voters. And even above that, from a 30,000 foot view, I think it's just the terms of the fight. What we've seen in the California recall, which I think we're going to touch on later in the show, is that Governor Newsom in California began to turn the tide as he began to make this basically about taking on anti-vaccination Republicans like Larry Elder out in California. And that has propelled him to what looks like a, a fairly commanding position. I think the White House, from a purely political standpoint, is saying, look, this is a better fight than the did Biden fail or did Biden succeed? That's that's a tough one. That's a Rorschach test politically. This fight is you're either on team, let's fight like hell, or you're on team COVID. And he'd rather pick his enemies here and he'd rather fight against the Ron DeSantis's and Greg Abbott's of the world and the people who were you know, smack dab against anti-COVID measures and be on the side of the angels in terms of fighting the pandemic. It's probably just a better narrative. Well, in the long run, is President Biden failing on COVID with cases on the rise, a slew of changes and reversals on boosters and masking and criticism coming in from previously supported public health leaders? What do you make of the administration's actual performance, Alicia? I certainly don't blame President Biden for COVID um, or for the situation we're in for the most part. 
the problem his administration has made is he, he can't get even himself on the same page, right? So it's confusing the rest of us. You know, do I get the booster shot? Do I not get the booster shot? I'll get it if I'm supposed to get it. But one day I'm told I should get it at eight months. The next day I'm told six months. And the next day I'm told not at all. Wait, let's see the science. You know, masking has been pretty universal that it helps, but whether it should be mandated keeps going back and forth. He's got to get on the same page with his own administration because it has created, it has taken the skepticism of all this that already exists and proven the point to the skeptics that they're supposed to be skeptical and given them ammunition to not get a vaccine, to not wear a mask, to oppose all those who want to do both. And I do place a level of blame on the president, not for where we are with COVID, but where we are with people's managing of it and managing of the situation we're in. All hoads. Well, I, I suppose that if you wanted blind consistency uh, from an administration, um, you could get it. I mean, you had blind consistency from the Donald Trump administration, and that's and look where that got us. Uh, if you want an administration that follows science and takes action, uh, because circumstances change in a fast-paced and fast-changing world, um, you can look at the way the Biden administration has dealt uh, with COVID. Um, the Delta variant is not Biden's fault. Uh, responding to the Delta, Delta variant was Biden's obligation. Um, so I, I think you're, you know, in the modern world, uh, crises come in, in batches and they come often. And it requires uh, flexibility. It requires uh, like a, a nimble approach um, to, to dealing with policy and changes. Um, I I'm pretty satisfied with um, most of what the Biden administration has done and the way they are responding to COVID. I am, I am very glad uh, about the vaccine mandate. It sends a strong signal. It's practical. Um, and it's the right response to a dangerous uh, situation. Um, you know, if you want to look at other other situations, Biden has taken a lot of heat, including from us, um, uh, about with the concerns about uh, the way the evacuation from Afghanistan happened. Uh, Secretary Blinken said um, we we inherited a policy, but no plan. Um, that doesn't necessarily let Biden off the hook on that. But on on dealing with COVID. Uh, I think Biden has sent a consistent message about masks and following the science, uh, and his administration has been flexible and smart um, uh, and now taking an aggressive approach. Matt Robeson? Well, let me ask you this, Ken. Do, yes. you, want me to, do you want me to answer this question? Or in to, 40 to, to seconds use, or less. Yeah, or I'm going to do this Ken Kale style, or hanging pause. Do you want me to filibuster for a few seconds and then take your question after we take a radio break for our WKXL listeners? Filibuster, please. Filibuster. I was I was midway. I was I was doing it. It's like that scene in uh, Spaceballs where they put the videotape like, when is this going to happen now? Now, now we're watching now, now. And I'm filibustering right now. I love your yeah, movie references today. I, I'm nowhere without a, a good movie reference. I think the question was, is President Biden actually failing 
on COVID. And I think Alicia kind of captured it fairly well. I think one of the hard things and the frustration that I feel is that in today's political culture, you can admit nothing. You never back up. You never concede a point. I came up, this is going to sound like rose-colored glasses, but I came up in a political and rhetorical culture. And I was sort of trained rhetorically in debate and an argument that a smart concession to your opponent's point can lend you credibility and it can make the audience more receptive to what you have to say. They think they, they kind of sympathize with your opponent. And so you say, well, good point. And by the way, I frequently do that on this panel, but it's genuinely because I believe that the other panelists have made good points. So I do think there are criticisms to be had of the Biden administration. I said on this panel a few weeks ago that President Biden could have been more nimble. There was a plan when it came to Afghanistan. There was a plan and situations rapidly changed on the ground and they were insufficiently flexible and nimble and on the jump about updating their strategy. You could say the same thing to some degree when it comes to COVID. You could also say that they jumped a little bit too fast when it came to prescribing boosters. And to Alicia's point, you could say that that whipsawing of messaging has created confusion and bolstered some of the anti-vaccination and anti-masking sentiment from an already hesitant segment of the population. But I do think that that criticism should be kept in proportion. The strategy that they adopted was really good three months ago. It was get a big percentage of the American adult population vaccinated, then give people an incentive in the form of a light at the end of the tunnel, a reward for getting vaccinated. You can take off your mask. You can gather with family. By the 4th of July, there's a goal line that you can hit where things are going to start to feel really, really better. And by the way, it was working. We hit 4 million a day in terms of vaccination. And even the show last week tonight was making fun of the number of newscasts that were talking about hot vax summer. You remember like five minutes ago, culturally, when all we could talk about was what a hot vax summer we were all going to have. <laughs> so that's where we were. And then Delta made things go south. Alicia's right. That's not the administration's control. Also remember that there was a lot of science to be done at that point. We didn't know how would Delta affect the efficacy of masks? How would it affect vaccination, infection, hospitalization. We're still learning about all of those things and that takes some time. So could the administration have moved a little faster to go nuclear with a vaccine mandate? Yeah, probably, but we're talking about a scale of maybe a couple of weeks as all of that understanding came in. And so is this some kind of a massive miss on the part of the Biden administration? No. Is there some equivalence that we can draw with Trump's gigantic death cult approach? No, I don't think that there's a convincing amount of evidence or, or narrative to support the idea that this is some kind of a Biden failure. Well, Paul and Matt had the elite Associated Press reporter in California covering the election on Beyond Politics Monday. So what did you find out and what is the significance of today's California recall election, Congressman Hodes? Well, uh, it was a fascinating interview by Kathleen Ronane, who is um, the AP uh, chief out there. And 
she she has a background in New Hampshire at the Concord Monitor, which gives her great credibility with us because the Concord Monitor, as as everybody knows, is the place that that great reporters are are born and sent throughout the world of American journalism. Um, when we talk to her. Uh, she just was a fount of information. Um, there are 22 million voters out in California. Uh, when we, as we were talking to her, about seven and a half million of their of the votes uh, had been cast already. That was last Friday, um, before the Tuesday actual election day. Um, we talked about the genesis of this recall. Um, you know, two out of the uh, three gubernatorial recalls that that we know about uh, are from California. Um, it seemed that uh, this seemed somewhat unlikely as a as a recall, um, but uh, Newsom did not help himself when he was photographed dining at an exclusive uh, California restaurant called the French Laundry. Uh, without a mask, um, after he had been urging people to get masks, that seemed to inflame the recallers. Uh, and for a time, Democrats were really worried because Democrats did not seem to be too involved or paying too much attention and didn't put up um, a lot of resistance. Although it appears from the information that we can see from the votes that came in that Democrats were of voting in uh, significant proportion to their uh, being part of the electorate in California, which seems to be good news for Democrats. The thing that struck me was that there are something like there are 46 um, choices if uh, on this recall, which has two questions. One, do you want to get rid of the governor? If yes, who do you pick? Then you get 46 choices. Uh, the lead Republican choice would appear to be a uh, flamboyant uh, podcast uh, radio host named Larry Elder. Um, there doesn't seem to be much of the way of choice on the Democratic side, except for a 29-year-old multimillionaire um, uh, Silicon Valley entrepreneur um, is that the guy who uh, wants to build a tunnel to Indiana or something? Yeah, no, 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 no. He wants to build a pipeline from the oh, Mississippi pipeline. River, a pipeline from the Mississippi River to California to bring water to California. Well, I mean, that's the kind of thing that Californians should like. Let's let's build a pipeline across two thirds of the country to bring us water. And, and you know, whatever the rest of the country thinks about it is our pipeline. We're we're California. We deserve it. So that, that's a that's an entrepreneur's approach to bring water to California. Um, that all that said, uh, it appears that. Uh, Newsom is going to do okay. It, it looks that way. We'll we'll know for certain, of course. Um, the stakes are pretty high, and the Democrats have have posed this as uh, uh, Newsom or Trump. You pick. You want you want Trump back? Uh, vote vote. You know, vote Newsom. Vote Newsom out. And a lot of the concern was because um, Diane Feinstein is, is 88 years old. And were she to retire or to pass away, if there was a Republican in the California 
governor's seat, uh, there would be a Republican added to the U.S. Senate, which would not make Democrats happy at at all. Um, but you know, my my takeaway from the from the other side of the of the country, from the right coast of New Hampshire, is that these recalls, and remember that uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger um, pumped himself up to be governor. So I recall election, and and he has had a stellar career since. But this is a this is a particularly Californian kind of kind of thing. I mean, you don't you know you don't like your governor, we'll recall him. Let's not wait till the next till the next election. So uh, Newsom uh, is likely to survive, um, and uh, you know it's California dreaming, baby. <laughs> Alicia Preston, what are your thoughts on the California recall election? I think the whole thing is so crazy. Every time it comes on TV, I kind of just laugh. I mean, Paul well laid out how this works. It's a stupid, stupid system to begin with. I do not believe in recall elections. If you don't want that person in office, vote the bum out next time. If he does something illegal, he can be impeached and removed from office. Recall elections are dumb. How this one is set up is dumb. So much of what some of the candidates are saying are dumb. I mean, Larry Elder, the leading Republican who, if Newsom does get recalled, and I'm with Paul, I don't think that'll happen, will probably win, is a black man who advocates for reparations of slave owners because they had their property taken away from them. The guy is a fruitcake. And Wait, back, back up for me a second there, Alicia. Wait, say what he, he advocates for? You didn't see this? Yeah, I didn't a- know that. And then someone, I think from Good Morning America, I don't remember, asked him to explain what he meant by that just the other day. And he said, I told you I'm not answering that question type thing. No, he thinks so. It was a discussion of like reparations and whether he supports them. And he just threw a line out there that said, and I'm paraphrasing and said, you know, we need to look at reparations for the slave owners, too, who had their property taken away from them. And he is a black man running on the, hey, you know, racists vote for me, I guess. I And I don't support reparations of any kind. But that was just wing nutty, even for a conservative wing nut, which he is. So we are now in a situation where it is plausible that a man like that becomes governor of California. One can only say it's a dumb system, but fun to watch. Matt? I, I'm still, my breath is taken away. I thought we had kind of reached the nadir of this kind of thinking when Ben Carson, as part of a Republican debate six years ago, somehow straight onto the topic of why he thought the Egyptian pyramids had been constructed to store grain. And it's like, well, th- this is it. This is just the end of politics. <laughs> I, I don't, but I, you know, look, I, I, you, there's sort of a simple answer and it's sort of a 30,000 foot answer to this question. At a simple level, I'm going to watch because I think what we're seeing in California is reflective of a, a few political micro trends that are worth paying attention to. I want to see how accurate the polling is. That's obviously been something that, you know, we've all been attuned to over the last five or six years. Do do we have a a grip on what we're measuring in polling? I'd like to see uh, Latino voting enthusiasm. That's been a real storyline, especially for Democrats. Like to see overall turnout because it might be a little bit of a tea leaf for this strategy of how did Paul put it? Um, You know, Democrats versus Trump, you know, do you want Trump coming back? Well, how well is that narrative working and how does that stoke turn out? So those are sort of the micro trends. But look, at a 30,000 foot level, I want to go back to what Alicia was saying a moment ago about just how crazy all of this is. And I find it crazy for, 
for just a slightly different reason. For anyone who's ever voted on the California ballot, I remember my brother-in-law was showing me his ballot a few years ago. It was 20 pages long because they do everything via referenda and ballot questions out there. It's an excess of democracy. It's an excess of choice. We think of democracy as a good thing. Well, too much of a good thing can actually turn into a bad thing. And I've made reference on this show before to one of my college mentors. He's a psychologist named Barry Schwartz who pioneered scholarship into the psychology of choice. And what he's found is that too many choices make us a lot less happy, right? If you go into the supermarket and there are 47 different types of mustard, you begin to not be sure that you even want a condiment anymore. And similarly, what voters find is when there's so much information flying at them, so many choices, 46 candidates on the ballot to replace Governor Newsom and all of these ballot questions and referenda, they aren't even sure they wanna be voting anymore. And what they start to do is they look for heuristics, mental shortcuts to make the choices easier. So what does that lead to? It leads to the simplest signals of, all right, uh, what are, what is the Democrat doing here? Like, is this person basically a Republican or a Democrat? This person is evil or not evil. So we've all bemoaned how much polarization we have and how negative our politics has become. I'm, I would offer that there is a connection here and that this kind of situation like we're seeing in California is part of what leads to the polarization, the mental shortcuts, and voters just kind of throwing up their hands and saying, give me an easy way to decide this. Just let me know kind of what the partisan answer is, and I'll just go with that. Do you think there's some concern from the Democrats in California over the polling since Joe Biden was there last night to call Larry Elder the black face of white supremacy? Do you think there's concern that the polling might not be right? There's always concern that the polling might not be right because the polling is often not right. I mean, how many times have we seen it in New Hampshire? You know, I mean, we keep getting uh, we keep getting we keep getting surprised by the actual results um, given given what the poll giving given what the polling says. So, I mean, is it uh, if I of course, Democrats are, are worried about it. Everybody ought to be worried about it um, because who knows? I mean, you never, you never, you just never can tell. Well, in the remaining weeks of September, Democrats are hustling to finish off their big reconciliation bill and pass a stopgap measure to keep the government funded and do final passage of the infrastructure bill. Any predictions for the coming weeks? What should we be looking for, Alicia Preston? Well, and I roll my eyes saying this, I think we're going to look at what we look at way too often and that's going to be congress can't get a budget done they're going to do a stopgap order and they're going to fill a hole because that's what they always do um and they do everything at the 11th hour and it's very frustrating i mean i do not support this 3.5 trillion dollar uh reconciliation bill or whatever it is it's it's just too big there's too much in it these things shouldn't be all lumped together but regardless of that i'm perpetually frustrated that Washington has a complete inability to get a budget done properly and in a timely manner. Congressman Holtz. Well, um, stranger things have happened. Uh, there are all kinds of adjustments that are being made to 
the bill to try to try to win win reluctant recalcitrant people. It's I think it's a very very heavy lift. Um, it will be uh, a great triumph if, in fact, it passes. But um, it's it's big enough, complex enough uh, to uh, to be a, a really heavy lift, especially given the reluctance of certain Democratic members of the Senate to just um, roll over, play dead, and say yes, please give it to me. So um, I'm sure that. Uh, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi are are working very hard to uh, make it make this palatable um, and to get it passed, even as a reconciliation bill. Matt Robeson, I'm watching for a number of moving targets in this because there is what's happening behind the scenes right now is the most furious stampede of lobbying under the face of the sun. There are all of these interest groups and coalitions and advocates just furiously, like if you're a lobbyist in DC right now, your phone is ringing off the hook. We don't have hooks anymore, but you get the point. Your phone is just ringing nonstop with your clients because if you don't get something done in this train leaving the station, you're probably out of a client. And so there, there's just all these moving pieces and it'll be interesting to see what happens. One big moving piece is uh, Democrats, especially from high uh, income tax states, high uh, uh, state tax states, are worried about the local and state tax deduction, which was eliminated and they wanna see it reinstated. I'm also interested in what's the top line number. Alicia just alluded to the 3.5 trillion. That's where it's at. But no one thinks it's going to stay there. It's going to come down because Joe Manchin wants it to be lower. So how much lower? Um, speaking of Joe Manchin, what corporate tax rate are we going to end up with? He said he's only comfortable with 25 uh, percent. Well, that's what Richie, that's what Richie Neal is now proposing. Is he is he? So the chair of the yeah. Ways and Means Committee over in the House, I thought he was saying 26 and a half. No, I think he's now down to 25. He's now down to 25. So where is that going to end up? What about immigration? You know, Alicia has spoken very eloquently on this show before about just some of the low-hanging fruit that Republicans and Democrats can agree on. I did an episode of Great Ideas this last week. I urge people to check that out, the podcast with Nathan Kasai, who's an expert on this. And he points out there are actually four groups of immigrants in this country that Republicans and Democrats basically agree on should have a path to citizenship or permanent status. You know, not just the dreamers, but agricultural workers, people who are uh, refugees who have protected status. It, it's it's frontline uh, healthcare workers. We could get this done if we can get the procedural ruling in the reconciliation bill. Um, and then there's the fight over healthcare. Are we, there's, there's a fight in democratic circles between should we be expanding Medicare or should we be supporting the fundamental structure of the Affordable Care Act? Uh, and where does that money go? So I think there's a lot of incredibly consequential moving parts that are gonna get resolved in the next few weeks with massive implications for people's lives. The final thing I'll say, because I, I wanna kind of toss this back, is that I find it just really interesting where Alicia started off a moment ago, which is, you just said, I don't support this $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. 
too much in it, too much going on. Isn't that the exact same problem that I was alluding to with California politics and the excess of choice and just too many moving parts? And what happens in a situation like that is that we're, we start to look for mental shortcuts. And where do, we, where do we end up? We end up in our partisan home bases, right? It ends up being, well, look, as a shortcut here, what are the Democrats for? What are the Republicans for? That's probably what I'll, what I'll use to shape my own opinion. But that's not really the way people think. When it comes to issues like that salt tax, Democrats and Republicans actually align in very different camps. When it comes to specific questions of healthcare, there's actually a lot more agreement. When it comes to specific groups in immigration, there's actually a lot more agreement. I think the massive size of this, and I'm agreeing with a point Alicia's made on this show before, I think the massive size of this is actually a failure of legislating by Congress. Because if we could deal with these issues in more of a piece by piece fashion, I think there's more agreement to be had out there where we wouldn't have to retreat to our partisan corners. Well, I, I do want to make a correction. It wasn't Biden that called Larry Elder the black face of white supremacy. It was uh, a professor who did that. Uh, but Biden did say that uh, running against Larry Elder was like running against uh, Donald Trump. So he, he did say that. So I wanted to make that correction before there were any misconceptions out there. Well, fair so, enough. I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Like, I, am, I, am I crazily off base? I mean, Paul, look. You are the only one on this panel who is a member of Congress. You understand better than everyone why everything needs to get smushed together into these giant bills, because it's very hard for people to act unless there's like a deadline, right? Unless there's a forcing function that makes them. But like, do you think that we could, if, if we were dealing with issues one at a time, do you think that there's actually more room for compromise or no, things have to kind of fly under the radar, otherwise they get eaten up by our politics? Oh, you know, I, look, I, I, I was never a big fan of, of having to vote on these giant bills because I'd read them, but I, I knew I'd miss stuff. My, my, my great staff that you led would read them and try to tell me everything in it. And I'd, I'd, always, I'd always miss things. There was, there was never any bill that I voted on, uh, any large bill that I didn't have to hold my nose on. I mean, I'd, I'd have to hold my nose and ultimately make a decision about whether or not there was more stuff that I could live with than stuff I couldn't live with. And, and, and if it was a 51% of stuff that I could live with, I'd hold my nose and vote for it. And I'd know, I'd know that I was going to get just clobbered in 60 second ads and on the campaign trail about all the stuff that was in these bills that, that I, 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 I didn't want, but I had to accept to take them. So, so that's the, that's the Scylla and Charybdis of, of voting when you're a, a member of Congress. But, and, and these giant bills were really the only way to get, get anything done because if you, if you, if you voted on it piecemeal, because you'd come up with the separate things that you didn't want, um, a lot of this would never get passed. So deals are cut. Deals are cut on the floor. Deals are cut at lunch. Deals are cut in committee. Deals are cut over drinks. Deals are cut left, right, and center to get this stuff passed. 
And that is going to have to do it for this, this edition of Balance of Power. For Paul Hodes, Alicia Preston, and Matt Robeson, I'm Ken Kale. Join us next time for Balance of Power.